This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is leaving port and beginning our journey. In the first half, Claudio R.M. Costa shares his address, Ships Are Safe in the Harbor. Then in the second half, Len B. Novila speaks on Journey of the Soul, Anchors of the Heart. Years ago, while visiting one of our institute buildings, I saw a beautiful painting on the wall. It was of a 16th century ship with the sails tied to the mast, anchored safely in the harbor. At the bottom of the painting was the inscription, A ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are for. The phrase was in my native tongue of Portuguese. In that language, the verb to be has two translations. One translation is the verb ser, and it means something that is fixed or permanent. The other translation is estar, and it is used to describe something which is transitory. For example, for me to state, I am the son of Nelson Costa in Portuguese, I would use the verb ser, because I am his son and I will continue to be his son forever. It is unchangeable. I am speaking to you now, and in about 20 minutes I will stop. To explain this in Portuguese, I would use the verb estar. The verb used in the inscription on the painting was estar, meaning that the ship, although anchor, was in the harbor temporarily. It will not be there forever. As you know, Ships are not built to stay in the harbor. Looking at the beautiful painting on the wall of the Institute building, I was reminded that ships are meant to navigate the oceans and to experience adventure. I was reminded that the same principle applies to us. While pondering the meaning of that painting, I thought about Lehi and his family. As you know, or you remember well, Lehi was a very prosperous man. He and his family lived in Jerusalem. I think they were very happy there. Lehi had some challenges, and you know, because he was teaching the gospel to people who did not want to accept it. But his family was happy and comfortable with their gold and silver and the precious comforts of their day. In fact, Lehi and his family were safe in their harbor, but they left their comfortable home and went to the desert because the Lord commanded them to do it. And they did not take everything they owned. When you go on a trip for two weeks, how much luggage do you take? The scripture tells us, that Lehi took nothing with him, save it were his family and provisions and tents. Also in the case of Lehi and his family, they got a ship, because the Lord commanded Nephi to build a ship for their travel 
to the promised land. My thoughts then went to Alma, the father. He was one of the priests to the king. He was in a high social position for his time. He and his family had all of the comforts that people could enjoy in their day. After he listened to Abinadi teach the gospel, he believed and became a follower of Christ. And now, the king said that Alma was stirring up the people to rebellion against him. Therefore, he sent his army to destroy them. Alma and the people of the Lord took their tents and their families and departed unto the wilderness. I also taught about many others persons in the scriptures and in the history of the church who were very comfortable in their harbors, but they chose to navigate in unfamiliar oceans. People like Alma the Younger and Amulek, who were persecuted because they followed the Spirit and taught the gospel to the people in their day. My thoughts also went to Ammon, the great missionary of the Book of Mormon. I thought about when he received his mission call and gave the news to his friends and relatives. Do you think they told him he was called to serve a mission among the most wonderful people on the earth? I think that when he announced where he would serve, his friends told him, don't go. Are you crazy? The Lamanites hate us. They will not accept you. In fact, they will try to kill you. Haman was safe in his home with his family. He lived in comfort, but he decided to leave the harbor and navigate to an extraordinary adventure. You know the results of his mission, the joy that he felt in his soul in all the years that he served as a missionary for the Lord. He declared to his son Helaman, The Lord doth give me exceedingly great joy and the fruit of my labors. The Garden of Eden was a safe harbor for Adam and Eve, but they would not have known their full potential if they had remained there. Noah and his family left their safe harbor to live on the ark while it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. By the time it was safe for them to leave the ark, they had lived on the ark for one year. What do you think that was like? Do you even want to imagine exactly how it would be to live for one year with a bull and a cow in your bedroom? <laughs> I thought about David, a shepherd, taking care of his flock. He was a young man. He was not a soldier. He was in a safe harbor of his life. But he left the security of his harbor, and with courage and great faith, he accepted the call to fight Goliath. And with the strength of the Lord, he won. I talked about the early members of the church who sacrificed so much to do what the Lord asked them to do. Joseph Beecroft was among a group of 700 saints 
who traveled by train from Boston to Iowa City. They began the journey in cattle cars, using their luggage for seats. Joseph Beecroft reflected on how the gospel bounded people from different economic classes. For part of the way, he rode next to a wealthy convert named Thomas Tennant. Joseph wrote about him with admiration and awe. We had, among others, Squire Tennant for a carriage passenger. He had his wife, her mother, and his child. What has Mormonism done? Such an spectacle was scarcely ever witnessed as to see one who has been so rich and so high in life come to be headled together with the poorest of the poor, to see how patiently he endures all things is truly wonderful. Before leaving England, Thomas Tennant paid $25,000 to buy a home that Brigham Young offered for sale to help replenish the Perpetual Immigration Fund. This purchase provided the greatest single contribution to financing the 1856 immigration. Thomas Tennant would never see the home, however, as he would die in October near Scott's Bluff, Nebraska. Another example is George Careless, who was known as a musical pioneer. He was 11 years old when he joined the church in England in 1850. George had a clear soprano voice and gave up a position in a cathedral choir, including a salary and a free musical education when he accepted the gospel. In 1859, George began formal studies at the Royal Academy of Music in London. He passed the four-year course of his studies in only three years and in 1862 began playing professionally. During the next two years, George played under many of the famous conductors then working in London. He also conducted the Goshwell Branch Choir and presented concerts for church members and their friends as part of the London Conference meetings. One Sunday evening, early in 1864, Elder William Staines approached him. Brother George, he said, I had a dream about you last night and was shown that you were advancing so rapidly in your profession that your fame and fortune would be made if you remained in London and that you would not be able to sacrifice it if you did not immigrate to Zion this year. Elder Staines then counseled George to sail for Utah on the next ship, offering to advance him the money if need be. After laboring with George for half an hour, Elder Staines said, You are wanted in Zion, and I want you to go. What do you say? I will go, said George. George Careless went on to serve as chief musician of the church and was director of the Tabernacle Choir for a time. 
He is the author of many of our hymns. He sacrificed much and he received great honors in his lifetime. Most importantly, he remained a willing servant of the Lord. There are many stories of pioneers who left the safety and security of their homes to come to this beautiful valley. We had to sell everything at a great sacrifice, wrote Robert Crookston. But we wanted to come to Zion and be taught by the prophet of God. One more story is from the life of Ida Jensen Romney, wife of President Marion G. Romney, who served in the first presidency. Her grandparents joined the church in Denmark. My grandfather, she said, left a wet farmland, green with fertility, to come to Zion. The missionary told him how wonderful it was to live in Zion and that he would be given 40 acres of a farmland when he came. He was sent down to Levan, Utah, to colonize a land that was not nearly as verdant as the land he had left behind. He wanted to get on the first wagon that would take him back to the old country. Grandmother insisted that he stay. As I thought about this subject and the painting of the ship in the harbor, my thoughts took me back many years ago when I heard for the first time the story of Jonathan Napella, who joined the church in 1851 after being taught the gospel by the young missionary elder George Key Kenna. George was 16 years old. Can you imagine? They became good friends, much like Alma and Amulek. Jonathan Appella was a judge and a brave pioneer for the church in the islands of Hawaii. He helped the elder canon translate the Book of Mormon into the Hawaiian language. He organized a school to instruct the missionaries from Utah. He also served as a missionary. He was a good man, and he was married to a beautiful woman. In 1873, tragedy struck when Jonathan's beloved wife, Kitty, contracted leprosy. It was the custom of that time for persons with this terrible disease to be sent to live in confinement on another island. We can only imagine the intense suffering and degrading circumstances that had to be endured. Jonathan Appella chose to leave his safe harbor and move with his sweet wife to the leper colony. He loved her so much and could not leave her alone in that dreaded place. Jonathan Appella also contracted leprosy. But even in his own suffering, he continued to serve the temporal and spiritual interests of his people in the leper colony. He died in 1879, two years before his sweet and eternal wife. I talked about my wife at the time we were married. She was safe and comfortable in the harbor of her family. 
As a single woman, she lived with her parents and had a high position in her profession. She was making good money. She left the security of her harbor and married me. Yes, it's incredible, no? (laughs) I still don't believe. (laughs) She came to live with me in very humble conditions. We had a small studio apartment. This will help you understand just how small it was. When the sun shone in our window in the morning, we had to leave the apartment to make room for the sunbeams to enter. (laughs) There was not room for both the sunbeam and us in our small home. But we were happy and blessed we found a new harbor for ourselves. I thought about the great adventures of our mortal lives when we decided to have a family. Each time one of our four children came to the world, it was like leaving the harbor and navigating the oceans in a new and marvelous adventure. Bringing children into the world brought more responsibility to us, and it also brought great joy to our hearts. I testify to you that every time we left the security of our harbors, it has brought more happiness to our lives. It has been much better than being anchored in the harbor with no progress, where we could not experience the color and excitement that has been present in our lives. Even when turbulence caused by the storms of life naturally come our way in this mortal existence, we can be led by the lighthouse of the gospel and our testimonies of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I am also reminded by the most tender feelings of my heart of our Savior and Redeemer, who left the comfort of being at the right hand of His Father to give His life as an atoning sacrifice for all mankind. All that he did in this life, he did because he loves us and to set the example for us. He had committed no sins, but went to John the Baptist to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He stood against the temptations of Satan and admonished Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Our Savior knew at all times what it was like to leave the safe harbor. The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man had not where to lay his head. He taught us to live a perfect faith, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he began to be sore, amazed, and to be very heavy. Jesus was feeling the weight of his sin and the injustices of mortality. He prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. 
Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. It would have been easier to not experience the agony of Gethsemane, but Jesus chose to do the will of his Father. He chose to carry out his assignment because of his love for his fathering for us. Just as we might prefer to not suffer, Jesus prayed, Take away this cup from me. And again, he set the example for us in our suffering. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. In every way, Christ set the example for how to live, how to serve, how to find the answers we need to meet the daily challenges and decisions of life. When I received the assignment to speak to you today in a spirit of a prayer and fast, I received a strong feeling that I should tell you that Brigham Young University is a marvelous and safe harbor. You are anchored here now. You have the comfort and security that you need in this brief moment of your life. But you, like the ship, were not made to be here in the harbor of a Brigham Young University forever. You do not need to extend your years at BYU forever. You need to choose your career and just like the ships, go to the open sea and navigate the oceans. Many of you will leave BYU alone. Others with a spouse and children. Others will leave for your wonderful ocean of a full-time mission. I know that when you make the decision about your future, the Lord will show you in which oceans you need to navigate. Don't be afraid to live for the open sea. Don't be afraid to confront the waves of your future, the storms of professional challenges. Use your time in the harbor of BYU to prepare to the best of your ability for your career and the challenges of having a spouse and family. Abraham took Isaac on that long walk to the altar, believing it would be his last moments with his beloved son. The Lord had commanded Abraham, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, one thou lovest, and offer him for a burnt offering. I am sure this was not a safe harbor for Abraham, but he was obedient to God's commandments. President Hugh B. Brown said that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac because Abraham needed to learn something about Abraham. Of course, this is the lesson for all of us, to grow in faith and obedience so that we will have the confidence to do what the Lord asks us to do. We have the examples from the scriptures and church history of people who had faith to leave their safe harbors and accomplish great things. We have the capacity to follow their example. I promise you that if you have a faith in God, you will have the lighthouse of the gospel to help you and to bless your life. God will be with you. You are part of the most marvelous generation that has lived on the earth. And you are a great hope for the world. 
Your example and testimony will touch the lives of all you meet in the great adventure of your mortal life. Looking unto your faces, how can I not believe in a bright future? Remember what you see every day when you come to this beautiful campus. Enter to learn. Go forth to serve. I know that is what our Father in Heaven hopes for you to do. I have a strong testimony of this church. I am a convert. I prayed for 14 hours, and the Lord gave me the knowledge that Joseph Smith is a prophet of the Lord. I know that he saw in that beautiful morning in the sacred grove God the Father in Jesus Christ, and they spoke with him. I know that Jesus is the Christ. He is our Savior and Redeemer. I testify to you that he gave his precious life for you and for me and for all mankind. I testify to you that Thomas S. Monson is the living prophet of God today. And that the Book of Mormon is the most perfect book and that can guide us back to the presence of God. I testify to you that you have a bright future and say to you that the first presence in the quorum of the twelve apostles are prophets, seers, and revelators, and all of them, and all of us, general authorities, pray for you constantly. We love you, we respect you, and we honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is leaving port and beginning our journey. We've just heard from Claudio R.M. Costa. After the break, we'll return with Len B. Novilla for Journey of the Soul, Anchors of the Heart. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Leaving Port and Beginning Our Journey. Next is Len B. Novilla, BYU Associate Professor in the Department of Health Science at the time of this address, titled Journey of the Soul, Anchors of the Heart. Brothers and sisters, aloha! Thank you. Don't worry. I know I am in the right campus. I'm conscious, coherent, and oriented. I thought the sunshine in that aloha greeting would warm us up here in Utah and bring smiles to our faces. May the Holy Ghost abide with us and speak peace into our hearts. I remember being in third grade when my sister Jean took me and two of our younger siblings to watch a movie adaptation of Homer's epic featuring the hero Odysseus. Considering how poor we were, Watching a movie was an extravagance that did not happen often. But I thought we got our money's worth because it was a long movie. The voyage home to Ithaca for Odysseus and his men proved to be anything but easy and speedy. I was mesmerized by scenes such as Odysseus blinding the one-eyed Cyclops Polyphemus, son of Poseidon which then enraged Poseidon. The tribe of gigantic cannibals or Lystrigonians 
and the lure of the enchanting music and voices of the sea sirens. Now that I am much older, I look at it differently. Instead of focusing on the frame-by-frame cinematography, I am drawn to the storyline and the lessons it holds. For instance, the trip to Ithaca was costly in terms of lives lost and years wasted. This was not because the reason for the voyage was not worth taking. It was their personal choices in the face of pride and temptations which dictated their course and the length of their voyage. In the end, more than the Trojan War, it was this journey that changed Odysseus. Hence, we refer to difficult and life-changing journeys as personal odysseys. Greek poet Constantinus Cavafis likened the voyage to Ithaca to our personal odysseys. He spoke of the maturity and the wisdom that can attend such experience. To quote selected stanzas of his poem, When you set out for Ithaca, ask that your way be long, full of adventure, full of instruction. The Lystrigonians and the Cyclops, angry Poseidon, do not fear them. Such as this you will never find, as long as your thought is lofty, as long as a rare emotion touches your spirit and your body. The Lystrigonians and the Cyclops, angry Poseidon, you will not meet them unless you carry them in your soul, unless your soul raises them up before you. Have Ithaca always in your mind. Your arrival there is what you are destined for. But don't in the least hurry the journey. Better it lasts for years, so that when you reach the island, you are old, rich with all you have gained on the way, not expecting Ithaca to give you wealth. Ithaca gave you a splendid journey. Without her, you would not have set out. She hasn't anything else to give you. And if you find her poor, Ithaca hasn't deceived you. So why should have become of such experience that by now you'll have understood what this Ithacas mean? Close quote. Life itself is a journey. Setting out for our personal Ithacas is embarking on a voyage of transformation. This is a journey that we know in our hearts to be right, but is somehow beset by challenges. As students, are we determined not to give up on our academic journeys despite the difficulties? For those of us in the middle of our careers and currently navigating our way into our own ethicus, how is this defining us as an individual and our relationship with our family and our God? How we respond reveals our character and inner strength. We can either let the setbacks define us or we can choose to move forward. If we choose to, we can arrive at our destination, a far different person, hopefully much better and wiser. Going through the journey itself is a reward. The lessons therein test our capacities and strengthen our souls until we measure up to the privilege of our position as sons and daughters of God. The scriptures are filled with records of travel, 
whose messages apply to our personal journeys. In the Old Testament, several accounts were of epic proportions, one of which was the Exodus. Led by Moses, the flight of the Israelites out of Egypt into the land of Canaan was not the fastest nor the shortest route by the standards of our present GPS. The stop over in the wilderness took 40 long years. Perhaps it was from here that we heard the original version of, Are we there yet? The grumblings were incessant. The Israelites felt stuck in the wilderness. What lessons can we take away from this exodus? This 40 years sojourn in the wilderness was not a side trip but a pivotal event. Humility, faith, obedience, trust, and dedication. Virtues necessary for a people to be true to their eternal promises were forged in the wilderness, not in the comforts of Canaan. It was in Sinai, not in Canaan, that Moses received the Ten Commandments. It was in the desolation of the wilderness that God walked before his people, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Miracle after miracle attended the children of Israel, from the parting of the Red Sea to the borders of the land of Canaan and beyond. The hand of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob had so tenderly cared for his people. Has the Lord treated us any differently now? In these journeys, we bring with us our faith and our attitude. Contrast the murmurings of the Israelites with Nephi's I will go, I will do attitude to the Lord's commands as recorded in the Book of Mormon. The combination of the right attitude and righteous choices allowed Nephi to be more receptive to the Spirit of the Lord. It not only made a voyage to the promised land possible, it defined Nephi as a man and as a prophet. Likewise, the journey of faith by the pioneers left behind footprints of extraordinary courage and resolve. What seemed insurmountable became possible because they hang on to their faith that their God will never forsake them. They girded up their loins and with every step took fresh courage until this desert was transformed into a sanctuary of faith. Whether on land or on sea, a group of thousands or a few, life-changing journeys can truly become journeys of the soul if we desire to serve and be like Christ. Perhaps This is why the missionary section in Doctrine and Covenants opens up with the word embark. One of my favorite accounts of the journey of the soul is the first Christmas night, the prelude to the atonement. In the New Testament, Luke gives a description of plain, unassuming people watching their flock by night. Upon learning of the Savior's birth, the shepherds came with haste until they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Notice that Luke used the words haste and found. This shepherd set for us the example of running to the Savior 
with a faith pure and simple, untainted by skepticism. Matthew, on the other hand, spoke of the three magi searching for the Christ child. Their intent was deliberate and their question direct. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. I could not find a better example of a personal journey of the soul than that of a repentant heart. The surrendering of our hearts to the Lord is not only transforming, but also sanctifying. The eye may never witness, and the mind will never be able to measure the tremendous anguish, grief, and sorrow that attend the forsaking of one's sins. That is the Lord's purview alone. Such agony is matched only by the strength of one's faith to be healed and the hope for second chances. This journey of penitence can only be completed by the individual with the Savior. Only the combined love of the Father and the love of the Son, as tenderly carried out in the Atonement, has the power to make us whole again. Only such love can heal without a scar. During times when we feel we are least deserving of such love, President Hinckley assures us, quote, You are his child all the time, not just when you are good. You are his child when you are bad. You have within you a portion of divinity that is real and tremendous and marvelous and wonderful. Close quote. Christ himself affirmed this eternal truth. Remember the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And how great is his joy in the soul that repenteth. Imagine if this soul happens to be that of a loved one, or perhaps ours. Many of us, who know the pain of life's adversities, of sickness, death, divorce, failure, loss of a job, or that of a loved one's wrong choices, can testify that as we carefully look back, each challenge was met by blessings. Though difficult, the journey seemeth short and the burden light. It was as if the weight was not borne by us alone but by many loved ones, by angels, even by the Savior himself. The Savior has never left us alone, even when our faith was faltering through the journey. He has been with us every step of the way. He had increased our understanding and magnified our strengths, that we may know him firsthand. Elder George Q. Cannon had beautifully expressed this truth, quote, No matter how serious the trial, how deep the distress, how great the affliction, God will never desert us. He never has and He never will. He cannot do it. It is not His character to do so. He is an unchangeable being, the same yesterday, the same today, And he will be the same throughout the eternal ages to come. We have founded God. We have made him our friend by obeying his gospel. And he will stand by us. 
We may pass through the fiery furnace. We may pass through deep waters. But we shall not be consumed or overwhelmed. We shall emerge from all these trials and difficulties, the better and pure for them, if we only trust in our God and keep His commandments. Close quote. Whether it is in the wilderness of Sinai, the plains crossed by Latter-day pioneers, or in the seclusion of our sacred groves, no journey of the soul could ever be completed unless our hearts are anchored on light and truth. An anchor is something that keeps us steady, secure, and stable, a source of support, an emblem of hope, a sure foundation. Such anchor can only be found in Christ, as Nephi declared, quote, We talk of Christ. We rejoice in Christ. We preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ, that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. Close quote. Throughout the uncertainties of life, only Christ and His love are constant. There is no more perfect example of love than the atonement itself. Its power and promises are the hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. In the end, it is the atonement that unites our journeys, for we are all in need of its power to heal, to rescue, to soften hearts, and to be made whole again. Our baptismal and temple covenants, the priesthood, and its ordinances, the sacrament, the scriptures, all point to this great sacrifice. This additional anchors steady us amidst the turmoil of life. There is one more journey that my heart holds dear. It happens to be a story within a story, my family's journey of conversion. In the Book of Kings is an account of faith by a widow in Zarephath, who, in time of drought and famine, gave up her family's remaining food for the prophet Elijah. Quote, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake, but a handful of meal in a barrel, and a little oil in a cruise. Close quote. The gospel came in our lives at a time when we had been sufficiently humbled by trials. The most that we could literally offer the altar was not even a morsel of bread, for we had none but our very faith. It was all that we had. Thus, I liken the widow at Zarifat to the widow in the Philippines, the widow of Tondo with seven children. She is my mother. Let me tell you our story. There are six girls and a boy in our family, a mix that does not bode well in a society where women were not regarded as men's equals. I am the fifth child in that brood of seven. I was six when my father died of cancer. Our eldest had just turned 18, and the youngest was two years old. The memory is still vivid in my mind, as though it happened just yesterday. My mother was by my father's bedside, her face exhausted and drenched in tears. Each of the children was summoned by name to approach our father's side. With my mother holding my father's right hand, each of us, from the oldest to the youngest, 
place our right hand on top of our parents' hands. There are seven children. There were seven right hands placed atop each other in a solemn act of promise. It was our father's dying wish that we look after each other. Then there was silence, a silence broken by my mother's wailing, then by her defeated sobs. My father passed away. Without a stable breadwinner and with seven children left to a mother, without a college degree or a job, our finances were tenuous. We grew up in poverty, not just income poverty, but also a scarcity of opportunities. We were too poor to even get an education, but my mother persisted in her dream to have each of her children complete a college degree. She believed in the power of education to enlighten, to transform lives, to equalize social standing, and as the vehicle out of our dismal circumstances. She borrowed money, even at high interest rates, to keep us in school. I remember rejoicing in being able to take exams. Yes, those were joyful, not dreadful moments, because it meant that my mother was able to pay our tuition. Eventually, the only way for us to go beyond high school was to qualify for scholarships. Four years after my father died, two young American men knocked on our door looking for my mother. They introduced themselves to us as missionaries. Behind them was a throng of Filipino children fighting for their attention and calling out, Hi, Joe! Under the sweltering Philippine heat, these young men stood out in their white shirts and ties and black briefcases. That for us, they look more like a toss-up between James Bond and CIA agents. I was about to tell them that my mother told me that she was not at home when my mother's friends and their children showed up. They came with the missionaries. My mom overheard and motioned to me to let them in. I quietly asked myself, what are we getting ourselves into? To invite these Americans with social suicide, as my mom was known in our community for her staunch devotion to the dominant faith. When my father was alive, he had always invited the missionaries, not my mother. When my father died, we knew that any opportunity to hear these missionaries died with him. What could they possibly offer that we still didn't have? Was my mother's quick retort to any attempts of having our family taught. The year after my father died, martial law was declared in the Philippines. On top of that, there was a national shortage of rice, the country's staple food. To stave off the shortage, rice was combined with corn and rationed five kilos per family. For us to survive, my mom marshaled every inch of strength she had. She talked a friend into allowing her to be paid a meager sum by helping deliver rice. She would leave at 4.30 in the morning and would come home at 11 at night. At the end of the day, she would pick up grain after grain of rice and corn that spilled up on the floor of the delivery truck. She would not stop until she had several handfuls for tomorrow's meals. Our life was already at its worst. How could listening to this Americans help? 
What could these missionaries offer that will make our life better? To our surprise, our mother listened to the missionaries. She even attended an area conference at the Araneta Coliseum presided by President Spencer W. Kimball. That was an act of boldness to go against a predominant religion. That was the 70s. People's minds were so strongly averse to changes. It must have exacted much willpower from my mother to stop drinking coffee and to stop smoking just because two foreigners barely in their 20s said so. At a time when nicotine patches were unheard of. It must have taken real faith to part with a widow's might for tithing. It was only out of politeness for my mom and the missionaries that I listened. My elder sisters did not want any part of this. Despite our obvious annoyance for these missionaries, they continued to visit and responded to us in love and patience. My mother, my younger sister Ruth, and myself were the first to be baptized. My older sisters followed months later. My brother was baptized when he turned eight. It took years in a temple in the Philippines for my father to be baptized by proxy and for us to be finally sealed as a family. What did the missionaries offer? They offered us the opportunity of knowing that families can be together even beyond death, something that my father had always hoped we could be. The missionaries taught us that we have a heavenly father who knows each of us by name and who loves us dearly, a concept so foreign for the God that we knew lashed out punishments and heard only memorized prayers. The missionaries taught us that our bodies are sacred. They taught us the value of preparedness, temporally and spiritually. The missionaries taught us where we came from and where we're going. The missionaries offered the message so sweet that it was most desirable above all things. It filled us with joy, not just momentary bliss, but peace and radiance that continued to sustain us through difficult times. The fruit of the gospel is remarkably sweet, and we paid a high price for it. Following our baptism, relatives and friends distanced themselves from us. They charged my mother with blasphemy and insanity. Some refused to extend any help despite our needs. The loss of that social safety net was economic suicide for a family already living on the edge of poverty. Even as young children, we were not spared from the many trials, and we had to grow far beyond our years. Being in a private school of another religious faith, a nun confronted me before my sixth grade class for choosing to be baptized as a Latter-day Saint. I came home the day in tears. My sister and I were eventually disqualified from receiving the highest academic honors. We were denied the very measure of success we had worked so hard for. This was not the end. Many more challenges came. How did we keep the faith? First, it was never because we were smarter or stronger, nor were our lives easier. 
With the help of the Holy Ghost, a conversion rooted within the heart drove the change. What helped us was that we stayed on. We did not give up at the very first sign of adversity. We kept going even when the tempests in our lives were raging. We kept paying tithing even when the choices came down to not having enough to eat. We kept coming to church with the thought that if we continued to do so, eventually principles that were once unclear would make much more sense. We kept going with the understanding that people around us were not perfect, but were putting forth the effort to be better. Second, while it is true that our happiness now and forever depends on a degree of spiritual change in our personal lives, we still needed other support. We were not always brave nor fearless, nor could we clearly see even a step ahead into life. We had to rely on borrowed light until we mustered the strength to light our own lamps. We could not have made it this far without the love, understanding, encouragement, and kindness of members and friends. Has the Lord been mindful of our sacrifices? Yes. He is continually involved in our lives. There was no way that a mother widowed at 41 without a job and a college degree, could have possibly raised seven children from two to eighteen years of age without divine help. Heaven must have heard her many pleadings and interceded in so many ways that it amazes us even to this very day. Through the Lord's design and blessings, each of us was able to complete our studies. Two are doctors, a nurse, a lawyer, an accountant, a hotel and restaurant manager, and IT support. Thus was the promise of Elijah to the widow of Tonda fulfilled. Quote, and she went and did according to the saying of Elijah. And she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Elijah. Close quote. One would not understand how tenderly, patiently, and lovingly the Lord tended our family if I were to skip the sad parts. This is a story of struggles, but most importantly, it is a story of faith, of hope and hard work. This is a legacy that we want to leave to our children and their children's children. The best help heaven extended to us was giving us missionaries who were motivated, who were willing to work long and hard until our hearts were ready to listen and to be touched by the Spirit. These were missionaries who were able to recognize hearts as though the Lord himself was here. I cannot thank these missionaries without thanking those that lent them to the Lord, their mothers and fathers. To parents of missionaries and their families, thank you for lending your sons to the Lord. Thank you for your sacrifices. You remind me of Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, who stated in faith, Quote, For this child I prayed, 
and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. Close quote. Our life's ultimate journey is to come unto Christ and be perfected in Him. This is the heart of the gospel. The Savior invites us to go on a journey with Him and calls us repeatedly to come, follow Him. As we do so, there will be challenges, but none that cannot be addressed by the Savior's love. Eventually, it will be His tender mercies that will save us many times over. For the sorrows that may not be readily seen on the outside, the Lord sees clearly in our hearts, and He offers love. He sees us in terms of eternities. Wherever our personal odysseys may take us, however long or short the transformation of our souls may be, There is a truth I would like to testify of with all energy of heart. God lives. He loves us and loves to bless us. No matter how perilous the journey, Christ is in control. If we allow him to navigate our lives, he shall fight for us and we shall hold our peace. As we set our personal sails, Let us move forward with this thought from the book of Ether, that the wind did never cease to blow towards the promised land. May the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the love of your eternal companion, your family and friends, lift you up and attend your journey of the soul. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Leaving Port and Beginning Our Journey with thoughts from Claudio R.M. Costa and Len B. Novila. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.